Welcome back to Aliyah Yomi. Today we're going to be learning Va'era Revi'i, the fourth Aliyah in Parshas Va'era. We now get to hear about the plagues, the Makos. In our Aliyah we hear about the blood and frogs. Our Aliyah is 27 Sokim long, running from Perek Zayn, Pasuk Ches, to Perek Ches, Pasuk Vov. Let's take a look at the brief overview and then delve into some points to ponder. So we hear Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, when Pharaoh will ask you, give us a sign. Tell me how you can prove that you really are what you say you are. So what you're going to do is take your staff and throw it in front of Pharaoh. It will turn into a serpent. That's what they do. They, they throw the, the staff and Aaron throws his staff. It turns into, a, into this serpent. But the sorcerers of Pharaoh are able to replicate this as well. However, we're told at the end that in, in the, at the end of the day, that um, the staff of Aaron swallows the staffs of the Egyptians. But nonetheless, Vayechazak Lev Parod would not listen to them. And now the plagues begin. So Hashem now tells Moshe Rabbeinu, um, and uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, that his, uh, Paro's heart is heavy, he's not going to listen to you, you're going to go to in the morning, he's going to be by the water, and he's going by, by, the, by the Nile. Take the staff that you have in your hand, and you're going to say, my, the God of Israel said, to send out my, my, my nation, and you've not listened to me now, if you're not going to listen, you, I will show you that I'm correct, and I will turn this river into blood. All the fish will die, every, and, uh, and the, all of Egypt will have nothing to drink. So Hashem said, tells Moshe, the way this is going to work is he needs to take his staff and stretch out his hand over the waters, over the rivers, over the swamps, over all the gatherings of waters, and there will be blood, and that's what happens. They do this, uh, um, and Aaron lifts his staff, and all the water does turn to blood. Everything, all the fish die, because there's no oxygen in the water, of course, and um, they're not able to ex extract it from the blood. And the, the Egyptian sorcerers once again replicate this miracle, and Pharaoh's heart is strengthened. He doesn't give in to this. Um, they try to, the Egyptians in the meantime are in a desperate state. They're digging wells, trying to find water they cannot and it takes seven days in this terrible state of drought. And finally, Hashem says, go back to Pharaoh and demand to send my people. And if not, um, and uh, if not, I'm going to send Sephardim. So this is the next plague. And these frogs or these creatures are going to go into all of your houses, your bedrooms, your, um, your servants' quarters, your ovens, your, everything, that, uh, your, every part of your house, and they're going to infest you. So once again, Aaron is told to lift his staff, and it's going to be over all the rivers and the waters, and that's how he does it, in, and out comes at Saradea, where it's one frog or many frogs, and they, are, they come to society. Again, the sorcerers are able to replicate this, and, um, and this time Pharaoh turns to them and says, please pray for me that they should be removed. And Moshe says, when is it that you want them removed? And he says, tomorrow. And, if, um, and he agrees to that date the next day. So a lot, a lot to think about. Before going further, it is important to notice there are incredible patterns to be found in all of the ten makos. There are immense patterns. And I've given a shear on this called the makos, the makos matrix um, on this particular topic. Um, to understand this, we'll do a brief summary of these ideas, the bigger picture of the makos perhaps at the end we'll do um, of the Marcos. But right now we'll just try and send each one individually. So first, the first question on this idea is, what is the symbolism of, of, of the staff turning to a snake? And why is at the end we see that it is 
the staff of Aaron which swallows their stars. It's not his snake. It's sort of like it turns back into the staff, and then the staff is eating other staffs, which is very strange. Rashi calls it an ace Why do we need a miracle? A miracle is that it seems a little unnecessary. So the the Medrash Shmos Rabbah actually says that the reason it is is because Pharaoh himself is uh, is seen a, a, as a metaphor as a snake himself. Uh, the based on the pasuk in Yecheskel, Atanim Hagadol Haravets Besoich Yorav that he is this great serpent or alligator, crocodile living in his, in his swamps, in his river, who says, This is my river and I created it, thinking that he is the all-powerful um, demigod. So what is interesting is that in that respect, um, a pharaoh is the snake which is being transformed here. And part of the point of this is that it's not just a random the idea of snake. A snake was really that entity at the beginning of creation, as the Nevashachayim says, which tried to hide the godliness in this world. It was that entity which convinced Chava that really God is not interested in being imminent in the world and his actions, his commands are not necessarily binding in the same way that she thought they were, thereby hiding, hiding God's presence through the actions that he convinced humankind to commit. Paro really is a continuation of that ideology. Who's this almighty God that you talk about is at the top of the pyramid of all power in the world? Why do we need to do this? Paro is really that snake continuing that same ideology. And therefore, it's actually interesting that if you take a, if you take a look at what's going on over here, it's almost as if what Moshe Rabbein, the, the point of this whole episode of the snake and the staff wasn't about trying to do just something which is, you know, magical. It's about showing that a snake can turn into a staff. It's showing that something which is crooked and twisting and, uh, and manipulative can be returned to a staff. And therefore, it's in a, state, in, in a state of being a returned staff of directness, straightness, a clear demonstration of godliness that it is in that state which um, Paro's, Paro's Egyptian sorcerers stars are swallowed because it's going to be a clear indication. This is going to be very upfront and direct as to what is going to be happening. Another perspective over here is what we can ask is what is the lesson of the river turning to blood? Why was this the first of the Marcos which was chosen to affect Egypt? So the most basic level is there's so many of this is but the Malbim explains this and many of the Mephorshim explain this is that the the economy of Egypt depended heavily on the Nile. The Nile is the longest river in Africa, and it is an incredibly large and powerful river. Just to get a sense of the scope of this, the Nile River runs for more than 6,600 6, kilometers, which is 4,100 miles. It is, it is, in fact, critical to the development of all the ancient countries, running through 10 African countries today, Burundi, Tanzania, Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Uganda, Sudan, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. It, it has major tributaries, and 95% of Egyptians today live within a few kilometers of the Nile. Just so to get a sense of the power of the, the Nile River. It was therefore deified in those days, and it was seen as a, a, as a religious entity. So it makes sense that the Pharaoh who denies the almighty God in this world, their most powerful source of energy, of commerce, of life, is going to be the first thing, which is smitten. However, Rabbi Foreman points out a different perspective, and this is a very chilling perspective, and that is, is that really in Egypt, a infanticide has been going on. They've been killing infants uh, for, based on the decree of the Pharaoh. 
and in this most terrible and horrific way, little defenseless children, where did they cover up all that guilt? Where did they put all those children? Well, they put it into the Nile River. And every Egyptian who'd found the infant of their neighbor who'd been a Hebrew knew that the guilt of their terrible murder of innocent children lay at the bottom of that Nile. And when the blood started coming up out of that Nile, it was a revelation of the very cruel and caustic and merciless society that had created. It was a revelation of their own actions and immorality, which was happening over here as well. Another question we can do is, how do the sources manage to do this with the water? So the Malcolm explains that actually they were able to change small, you know, containers of water into, into blood, but they were not able to govern large areas. And the reason is because they did it with trickery. With achizas enayim, in the way that they, they kept people's eyes distracted, but they could only do that over small areas, and therefore this was not sufficient, which is why Paro needed a chizuk leiv, resoluteness, to carry on. Now the question is, why frogs? Why the next plague is frogs? So to me it seems that the first plague was attacking the source of the water, but now the pollution or the plague now actually exits the water itself and now comes into the human domain. So it's an overflowing of the power into the human domain. It's worthwhile noting, just as, a, and as an aside, that some of the makos are supernatural, meaning something turns around, something unnatural happens. Some of the makos are going to be an ex, a, a excessive amount of what is natural. So frogs are not unnatural, but a, a, the amount of frogs that happened here were completely unnatural. Now, it's interesting to know that the, the Torah spends a lot of time telling us where precisely all these frogs go. Why do we need to know all about this? So, it's interesting that the Shagos Arya, a great, great sage of the previous generations, points out an interesting Gemara in Psachim. The Gemara in Psachim tells us that there were three individuals at the time of the Babylonian exile, Hanania, Mishael, and Azariah, those are their Hebrew names, they had Babylonian names as well. Um, and they lived at a time when there was a decree to bow down to a large statue of the king Nebuchadnezzar and Nabuchadnezzar Utzar at the time. They refused to, they were pointed out by the Chaldeans and they were slated to either bow down or be thrown into the furnace and they chose to be thrown into the furnace. The Gemara says that they learned this from the frogs in Egypt because the frogs in Egypt decided to go even into the Tanurim, even into the ovens of the Egyptians. So they said if they are, if that a frog who is not commanded to obey the mitzvahs of Hashem goes into the tunnel, into the oven, so too we should as well. So the Shagas Arya asked, but wait a second, if you read the Pesukim, it says that Hashem indicates that they should go into the tanurim, into the oven. So Hashem did command them to go. In the audience when the Shagas Arya was speaking, there was a little seven-year-old boy, his name was Eliyahu, and he stood up and he said, I have an answer. The answer is because um, the frogs were commanded to enter lots of places, but not specifically that these frogs needed to go to the oven. That meant to say that there was no specific command to go into the ovens. They chose, those frogs that went into the oven, chose to be the ones to facilitate the decree of Hashem. That young boy Eliyahu was such, it made such an impression, he actually turned out to be Rav Eliyahu Vilna, the Vilna Gaon, who was in the crowd that day. Now, Rav Eli Baruch Shulman has a very beautiful perspective on this. He says that that explains a lot of things. Because if you think about it, how in the world are they learned? Why would Hanan and Mishael Nazari need to look at frogs? Because after all, we know that one of the three cardinal sins is not to serve Adazara. So they obviously had to give up their lives. So why were they looking to frogs? And also, frogs aren't exactly choosing. It's not like the frogs are doing an intellectual, philosophical exercise over here as to where they're going to go. So if you uh, think about what the, what the Vilnagon was actually saying, the Vilnagon was saying was that, yes, there was a decree upon all the frogs needed to go somewhere. But 
in, in the, uh, but the, it was specifically these ones which chose to be the facilitators of this miracle. Think about this for a moment. During the course of Jewish history, there have been many, many, many times where people and communities have had to make sacrifices for standing up for their religion, for standing up for their values. That has happened numerous times and many, many lives have been lost standing up for Judaism. However, this is the first time really where Hanani Mishra Zari were asked, not as a community, not as a family, not a, bes- a besieged city, but as individuals. And their question was, well, do we need to be those individuals? Do we need to stand out when nobody else is standing out? Nobody else, there were many, many, many other Jews in the Valley of Dura at that time who were bowed down to the statue. Why should we be the ones that stand out? And then they looked at the frogs. And they realized that, yes, frogs naturally, that all the frogs were commanded they had to go into different places, but some frogs would instinctively, and all the frogs would instinctively want to say, I don't want to be in that hot place. And yet, some chose to do so, which meant that they always have to be those who express the will of Hashem. And this is a message to the Egyptians as well. The Egyptians may have looked at the fact that they knew there was a bris bed of a sovereign covenant between the parts which the, in which the nation of Israel would be inflicted, or, uh, have, uh, uh, enslaved in a different country. They said, well, maybe we're doing that. So Hashem is going to punish them for being the ones who elected to be those to punish them. It's a very important mitzvah and, and concept is philosophically, are we part of God's plan or are we not? Can we let other people do it for the bad or the good? And that's the medicine that's been taught over here. Finally, one last question in Aralia. Why does Para ask um, for the frogs to be taken away the next day? I mean, if it's such a problem, it's a national disaster, he's declared a state of emergency, then get them away right now. Why is he asking for tomorrow? So Ramban in the Malam says because he, is marshal, he thought that maybe perhaps Moshe Rabbeinu had, had some sort of um, in, in indication or a control understanding of a dark force and he knew that there was going to be a plague of frogs from some unknown source and so he was capitalizing on that and using that as a way to, um, to control Pharaoh. And therefore he said, well, if Moshe is saying he's going to take it away now, then maybe it's because he knows the plague is ending. I'll wait and see if I can ch- check it out and see if he can, if he can take it further. A lot uh, further. And this actually goes into a very important point that our foreman makes in understanding the Makos is that Moshe is not demonstrating power. Power, there's much of the Egyptian pantheon has power. There's many gods in the Egyptian pantheon and they can marshal all kinds of dark forces as the sorcerers did. What they're trying to do is demonstrate precision. Precision is when you can orchestrate the power of all the gods. That means to say whether it's in the river or it's in the wind, whether it's on the earth or in the sky, whether it's on the human domain or the, or, or, or the, or the um, the domain of animals, all of those domains are controlled, which means there's precision, which means there is one pyramid scheme with one power at the top, unlike the model that Pharaoh looked at. And that is what's going on over here. With this, we close the fourth aliyah. In the meantime, have a wonderful and meaningful day.